we've been typically last several Sunday morning services we've been looking at a series on the holiness of God and tonight and this morning rather uh, we're going to be moving away from that just for today and looking at something new in light of the fact that we're having a baptism this morning so I wanted to spend a few moments with you today and talk about what it means to be a Christian what it means to be a Christian and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. In a few moments, uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 11, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, in a sermon that I've titled, What It Means to Be a Christian. I mentioned that this morning, we are taking a step aside from the holiness of God to discuss specifically, not just what it means to be a Christian, but baptism. Baptism is not a topic that is often preached on, but it's important that we address it this morning. Being one of the two ordinances that God has established, one being the Lord's Supper, baptism is something that should not be taken lightly, and therefore it warrants our utmost attention and it warrants our understanding. The Bible tells us exactly the message and the symbol of baptism as well as the method of baptism. I've said it before that God's Word truly is the believer's source of faith and practice, and this morning we'll see what God's word has to say with regards to baptism and what it reveals to us about being a true Christian. So with your Bibles open, I want you to follow along as I read. I'm going to begin with verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 6 of Romans, and I'll read down through verse number 11. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Now these days, the answer to that question isn't so simple. Because all kinds of people claim and call themselves Christians. I've heard reports that 80% of Americans claim to be Christians. People call themselves Christians based on several different factors. They call themselves Christians if they had a past experience where they walked up to an altar or walked an aisle in a church, or even if they were dunked in a baptistry, they call themselves Christians. There are people who call themselves Christians but live like there is no Christ, to live like God doesn't exist at all. They live like Jesus died and that he just stayed buried in that tomb altogether. That he never rose on the third day from the grave as the Bible tells us he clearly did. People claim to be Christians, but in many of these claims, we see that much of these people are far from Christ. 
Much like the Pharisees in the New Testament who claimed to be following after God. They claimed to be the most religious. They claimed to be the ones who knew God the most and were following after him by the letter of the law, but they rejected Christ when he came as he came as the promised son of God. Many people today do the same thing. Many people today claim to be Christians, but when it comes to actually believing in Jesus as the son of God, they reject it. The name Christian signifies that we're following after Christ. That's literally what it means. To be a Christian says that you are following after Christ. But far too many are claiming that title, and yet they're not following after Christ. They're living for themselves. They're living a life other than a life that is lived for Christ. So with all the misuse of the name Christian that goes on in the world today, I think we need to spend a little bit of time to see what the Bible has to say about what it truly means to be a Christian. Now, our passage this morning here in Romans chapter 6, it tells us that being a Christian very simply means that you are in Christ, that you are in Christ. You haven't just accepted Jesus as your Savior. You haven't just signed on to his program. You haven't just given Jesus a try. Being a Christian means that you are in Christ. Being a Christian means that you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, that when he died on the cross and he shed blood shed on the cross, that you trusted in him and believed him to be your only hope of salvation. Being a Christian means that you've been set aside and you belong to God, that he has marked you as his own. Being a Christian means that God has really engaged in almost a hostile takeover of yourself and you surrendered yourself over to his work and to his kingdom and to his dominion. You are in Christ. That's what it means. You are in his kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of your life. He is your master. He is your king. And our passage today, it shows us that being in Christ means really two things for us. Being in Christ means that you're dead to sin, the Bible says. And being in Christ means that you are alive to God. Notice first, it means that you're dead to sin. Again, look at verses 1 through 7 once more here in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. We are dead to sin if you're in Christ. When you're in Christ, you're dead to sin. Now, this means that you're dead to the presence of sin. Verse 3 brings up the picture of baptism for us. Look again at what it says in verse number 3. It says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. What a joy and a privilege it is to celebrate the ordinance of baptism this morning. And the reason it is such a joy is because of what baptism is, what it represents. There is nothing in the water behind me in the baptistry that is significant, that is important, that is magical. There is nothing in the water that is going to bring a person to salvation. 
There is nothing magical about the baptistry itself or the water that's in it or even myself who's going to perform the baptism. Nothing in the water offers and conveys any sort of salvation or any sort of grace or any sort of blessing upon the person going through with this. However, there is something significant about what will be done today. The ordinance of baptism that will be administered this morning, it shows the world that people have believed on Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only hope of salvation, and that they are in Christ. They're letting everyone know that they believe in Jesus Christ and that they are living for Him. It shows the world that they have publicly identified themselves with the death of Christ. They're showing the world that as Jesus publicly died on the cross, they are now dead to that old sinful life. And just as Jesus was raised again on the third day, they are raised, just like Jesus, to live lives in him. So the picture of baptism, you're buried with him. You're going all the way under the water, completely submerged, to picture Christ's death as he was dead and buried underground and then raised. We don't hold the person underwater. Bring him back up. Raised because Jesus rose from the grave the third day. It's all picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are now dead to the presence of sin in their lives when they're in Christ. Now, in the first century, the people were very familiar with ceremonial washings. As a matter of fact, that's what they thought of most when they saw a Christian being baptized. It was more of a ceremonial washing. Until they were clued in, to the picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, all they thought of when they saw a baptism was that a person was just being cleansed. Paul played on that when he wrote this text here in Romans chapter 6. He gave them the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he also related it to the picture of being cleansed from sin. When you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the very moment you trust in Him, you're cleansed from all your sin. All that sin that you've committed, past present and even you're going to commit in the future the moment you believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior it is all cleansed it is all forgiven God gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be upon you so that nothing you do from this moment on to the rest of your life is ever going to squander the gift that God has given you are secure in heaven from the very moment you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior it's all cleansed all sin Psalm 103, verses 12, it tells us, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. In other words, they are washed. They are buried. They are planted. They are covered. Our sin, the moment we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it is never to be heard of again. It's gone. Jesus assures us of this and that's why he went to the cross he went and he made atonement for all of our sin at the cross and when you believe on him the blood that he shed for you those many years ago at the cross it covers all of our sin every single human being from the moment they come into this world they're born in sin they add their own personal guilt as they live and do different things all of that is covered when they trust in jesus christ as their lord and savior the prophet isaiah he provides a beautiful picture of this in isaiah 118 he says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You see, what Jesus does for us isn't just cleanse us from our sin, 
but he made full atonement for all of our sin. In other words, he paid the full price for your sin. He paid off the debt that all of your sin incurred. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we become no longer accountable for our sins. In 1 John 2, verse 2, it says, And he, and this is speaking of Jesus, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The, the proper meaning of that big word, propitiation, is that of reconciling, or appeasing, or satisfying, turning away anger. The idea is that there is an anger, and there is a wrath, that has been appeased for. When you sin, you have violated God's holy law. And essentially, you have offended a holy and a perfect God. And God's wrath is deserving to be poured out upon you. But when you believe in Jesus, what happens is Jesus appeases that wrath. He satisfies that wrath. So when God looks at you as a person who's just now believed in him and his son Jesus Christ for salvation, he no longer sees you as an object of his wrath. He sees you as his child who is going to be in heaven one day because of your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it clear that the wages of our sin is death. So the punishment for our sin, it's not just a slap on the wrist or a fine that we have to pay off, but it's an eternal punishment. And because God is perfect, because God is holy, our sin cannot go unpunished. It needs to be dealt with. And because our sin is so great, the only possible opportunity for us to pay off our sins would be to spend eternity in separation from God in hell. That is what we deserve because of our sin. That is what Christ came to offer atonement from. The fact is that, that sin, we, we kind of sugarcoat things. We kind of water things down. And we'll call sin bad things. We'll say, oh, I, I just did a few bad things. It's not really sin. It's just a few bad things that I did. I had an error in judgment. I made a mistake. It was just a, a lapse in judgment, whatever it may be. It's simply being bad. But that's not exactly what it is. God is perfect. And as a perfect God, God requires perfection from every single one of his creation. Anything short of perfection is offensive to God. It doesn't just make him sad or it doesn't just make God disappointed. Anything short of perfection makes God eternally angry. He is offended and an eternally angry, offended God is only satisfied by punishing that sin the only way it deserves to be punished and that is eternal condemnation. But God provided a way for sinners to avoid the eternal consequences that we rightly deserve. God provided, as 1 John 2, 2, the propitiation for our sins, the substitute to stand in our place to suffer the consequences for all of my sin, for all of your sin. God sent his only begotten son to earth because he loved every single one of us so much and he poured out his wrath, not on you, but on his only begotten son at the cross of Calvary. The pain and agony that Jesus endured is truly unimaginable because he suffered not just one person's suffering not just one person's sin but he suffered the entire sin of all the world all at that time as he was on the cross of calvary the physical agony was nothing when compared to the isolation and the wrath jesus experienced on the cross when jesus cried out these words my god my god why hast thou forsaken me it was then that he experienced the full wrath of god the father as he was pouring out the wrath of sin upon him and why did jesus have to experience this unimaginable wrath of god well he did so so that you and i wouldn't have to Jesus took the punishment for our sin. He took the punishment and he endured the wrath for you and for me. And as the verse I shared a moment ago stated, 
Christ was the propitiation for our sin, the substitute, the appeasement for our sin. When you are in him, when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your punishment for your sin, past, present, future, has been fully satisfied, has been completely taken care of at the cross. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're no longer destined for an eternity in separation from God in hell. And the Bible makes this clear. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. What these verses tell us is that as a believer, if you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are dead to the punishment of sin. The punishment of sin, the eternal consequences of sin cannot ever harm you. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be consequences for your sin here on earth. You're still going to have consequences, but the eternal condemnation is not going to be your lot in life. You're dead to the presence of sin, and you're dead to the power of sin. A famous theologian, Charles Spurgeon, once said, he said, For me, there is no hell. Let it smoke, let it burn. But if I am a believer in Jesus Christ, I shall never have my portion in hell. For me, there are no eternal racks, no, no torments. For if I am justified, I cannot be condemned. Jesus has suffered the punishment in my stead, and God would be unjust if he were to punish me again. For Christ has suffered once and satisfied justice forever. Well, what does that mean, though? Does that mean that when a person becomes a Christian, that they all of a sudden become perfect? No. But, in a way they do. You become perfect because your sins have been paid for. Your sins have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven and you've been clothed in new garments of righteousness because of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17 and 21, it states, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. For God hath made Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What the Bible tells us is that the moment that we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that very moment... God sees Christ's righteousness in you. He doesn't see you and all the sin that you've committed up to this point in your life and see all the wretchedness and all the problems and all the issues of your life. The moment you trust in him, he sees you as justified, as perfect, because your righteousness is not what's saving you, but it's Christ's perfect righteousness that is imputed into your life. He sees you justified when he looks at you. Does that mean that we can go ahead and, and live a life that is full of sin? Does that mean that we have a license to go and do everything that we want to do without any sort of repercussions? Does that mean that when we're saved, God gives us a license to have all the sin in our lives without any sort of consequences? Well, when Paul was talking about the immense and the wonderful grace that God has given to us in salvation, that's the question he was asked. Does that give us liberty... That it's once we're saved to go and to do and to live all uh, as, as sinful as we possibly want. And look back at what it says in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1. He says, what shall we say then? The idea is, what shall we say now that we know 
that we're saved by the very grace of God. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The idea is, is that what the previous chapters talked about is that as much as we've sinned, and we've sinned a whole lot, I'm not going to ask you to make a list of how much you've sinned from the very moment you could sin to where you are today. But as much as we've sinned, the Bible tells us that God's grace is greater. That you could spend your, your entire life here on earth completely living in sin, adding one sin after the next to all of your situation, to your record in life. And God's grace is greater than it all. And so the idea is, and this is what he, the question is asking, he says, well, if that's true, shall we then just continue in sin knowing that God's grace is even better and greater than anything bad that we could ever do? Because by that logic, it doesn't matter how bad I am and how much evil I do and how much I live for myself instead of living for Christ because God's grace, which is upon me if I've trusted in Him, is greater and bigger than every sin that I could ever do. So by that logic, I'm good no matter what. By that logic, the Bible's basically saying that I have a get-out-of-jail-free card that no matter how bad I am, I know that I'm always going to be in heaven one day. This is what he's saying. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The next two words are some of the strongest words in all the Bible. Verse number two, Romans chapter six. He says, God forbid. God forbid. In the original language, the Greek, Paul used the absolute strongest language that he could to say that it is not possible for you to live with a license to be as sinful as you want once you're saved. The Greek words that make up those two words, it's just one word in the Greek where it says, God forbid, it's the word meganoita, which literally means it is my strongest wish and desire that this never becomes a reality. And while the word God doesn't actually appear there, the Apostle Paul is using the strongest language he can to urge against such a behavior or such a mindset. He was saying that it is completely and it is totally unimaginable that a person who is trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior would continue to live in sin with this idea that God's grace can just be greater than all his sin. If you're in Christ, you can't live in sin because, as we've already talked about, you are dead to sin. You have died to the presence of sin. But you and I both know that we continue to sin. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that, you know, I was saved at four years old, and since I was saved at four years old, I've lived a perfect life. I'm not going to stand there. Ask my wife. She knows I'm not perfect. Although, No. None of us are perfect. I don't care if you've been saved for 90 years. You're not going to be perfect here in this life. We're fallen people who are living in a fallen world and we're going to struggle with sin every waking moment of our lives until we breathe our last breath and go on into the next life. We're struggling. We're born sinners. The Bible says in sin were we conceived. And then when we're able enough, we just add our own personal sin on top of everything that we were born with. I wrestle with different sins daily, just like you wrestle with different sins daily. A Christian doesn't willingly, doesn't purposely continue in sin. He is dead to it. Because when you, you honestly cannot continually, willingly, purposely live in sin and live in Christ at the same time. 
When you live in Christ, you're dead to sin. Your old life of sin was killed. As, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we're new creatures, the Bible says, because that old life of sin has passed away. Even though uh, there, there, are, there are certain things that I, I personally struggle with. The difference is that as Christians, we struggle with it. We know that it shouldn't be there. We know that as much as we continue to sin, there needs to be an active working on our part to get rid of that sin, to get ourselves cleansed from this uh, thing that shouldn't be there. Even though I continue to have pride in my life, I wrestle with it daily. I wrestle with it daily because I'm dead to it. Your old life of sin was killed off, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, and we have a new life that is given to us through Jesus Christ. And honestly, it wasn't a, a pretty death. Just as Jesus was violently, just horrifically killed on the cross, as a believer, the Bible describes here in Romans chapter 6, it says, you have been planted, you have been planted together in the likeness of Christ's death. That means that the death of your sin is a violent death. It wasn't just that he spoke and maybe smacked you around a little bit and says, all right, now you're different. No, you are dead to sin. Well, notice what verse 6 says. It says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Your old man, says, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Why? It says that we henceforth should not serve sin. Even though we're going to continue to struggle with sin, it's exactly that. It's a struggle, and it's a good thing. It's okay if you're struggling with sin. That's a good sign that you're a believer. It's when you're not struggling with sin and you're openly embracing it without a care in the world, that's when there's a serious problem. That's when you need to have a serious self-examination to find out if you're truly saved. Because if you're able to sin without any repercussions, without any ill feelings, without any guilt or remorse, there's a serious issue there. But when it's a struggle... When you know that you've done something that you shouldn't have done, when your stomach aches and you have that pit in your chest, when you've done something you know you shouldn't be doing, when your mind is telling you, you probably shouldn't be doing this, you probably shouldn't be going there, you probably shouldn't be saying this, that's a good sign. Christians struggle with sin. It's a struggle because when you're in Christ, your body, your new creature in Christ is trying to serve Him. And the Bible says in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve God and you can't serve yourself at the same time. It says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus there makes it very clear that you cannot live fully in two different worlds where you have one foot here, you're living in the church, you're trying to live for God, and the other foot over here where you're living for yourself and having this license, for, license to sin and do as much evil as you want and think that you can manage these two lifestyles without having some serious issues. You can't do it, Jesus says. It is not sustainable. It is only going to bring on misery as you struggle and you fail on both sides of it. Jesus died to pay for your sin, and he lives again. He was resurrected to give you power over that sin in your life. He gives you life, and the Bible says he gives you life more abundantly. Not with necessarily material abundance, which he does for some people, but the idea when God gives you abundant, and abundant life 
is that he gives abundant freedom and power over the bondage of sin. The shackles of sin have been removed and Jesus allows you to finally be free from uh, and, and free for eternal life. In John chapter 10 and verse number 10, Jesus said, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But Jesus wasn't just talking about eternal life in heaven there. That's a big part of it. But Jesus went on to say that he, the, the, the life he came to give that was more abundantly, he's talking about your life today. The life that you and I are living here on earth, God intended for you to live a life that is more abundant. If being a Christian was only about going to heaven, Jesus would take you to heaven the moment you trusted in him. If that's all it was, why waste time on earth going through all the troubles of this life, if he saves me at four years old, just take me home. I don't want to go through all the, all, all the chaos of this life. If being a Christian is only about going to heaven, just take us home right away. And that's what he would do if that was the case. But when Jesus saves you, he saves you in order that you might live abundantly here on this life, here in this life, as we prepare for the life that he has promised us in heaven. Many people miss out on this fact that Jesus promises abundant life now, not in the way that some of these TV preachers tell us. They tell us that it's about all the material things. They say it's all about health and wealth and prosperity, that God wants you to be rich now, that God wants you to only have good health here, that God wants you to prosper, and everything that you're going to do here, wouldn't that be great? I'd love to have a private jet. I'd love to drive a Ferrari. I'd love to have all the finest things. That'd be great. But that's not what he's talking about here when he says God has given you an abundant life. It's not just a material thing. Some people he does bless materially. But that's not what he's talking about. I, I hate to burst your bubble if you were thinking that you were going to get saved in order to get on God's plan of getting rich. But these people are wrong that are teaching such things. Being saved by the grace of God doesn't mean that your bank account is suddenly going to be filled with more money than you can imagine. It doesn't mean that all of your wants and all of your desires are going to be met, that you're not going to have a single problem from now, the moment you're saved, until the moment you breathe your last breath. It doesn't mean that all those health issues are either going away. The abundant life that Jesus promises is a life of peace. It is a life of contentment. No matter what the circumstances may be, no matter what life throws at you, living in Christ is a life of love, of joy, of peace, of long-suffering, of gentleness, of goodness, of faith, meekness, and temperance. When you're in Christ, you're alive. You're alive the way you should be living here on earth. You're alive to the rich fullness and the abundance that only comes from a living Savior and a God who loves you. God promises a life of peace no matter how crazy life can get because in the midst of all the craziness, God reminds you that he is always in control and that, believe it or not, he is working all things out even for your good. God brings a calmness to your life when everything seems to be out of control. He brings stability to your life when the ground beneath your feet feels like it's crumbling out from underneath you. In all the chaos of life, God reminds you that he is there with you every step of the way because you've trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, and God is your God forever, not just when it's convenient. You're alive to past reconciliation. You're alive to present fullness. You're alive to future glory. Look at what it says 
in verses 9 through 11 here in Romans chapter 6. It says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I said that being in Christ, it isn't all about going to heaven, but that is a big part of it. As a matter of fact, it's an everlasting part of it. It's a part that will never end. Verse 9 says that because Jesus rose again on that very first Easter morning, resurrection morning, he conquered death, the Bible says. Death has no more dominion over him. By one man, Adam, he was the representative to the human race, death entered the world through his sin. By one man, Jesus, death was eternally defeated. And because of Jesus' victory over death, we can ask the question with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55, where he says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And we can proudly give the same answer that he did, where he said, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are alive to future glories in heaven. Not a glory where you get to hunt all the time, or shop all the time, or play baseball all the time. What a pitiful glory that would be. Our future glory will be to forever be in the presence of the one who created us. To be forever in the presence of the one who sustains us. To be forever in the presence of the one who loves us enough that he actually came down to earth and went to the cross and died for us. Forever in the presence of the one who will live forever with us, in us, and, and us with him. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we in Christ this morning? Now, I'm not asking if you call yourself a Christian, because anyone can call yourself a Christian. I can stand up here and tell you that I play for the Yankees. If you don't see me on the Yes Network playing for the Yankees and pinstripes, you're going to have some serious doubts. My claim doesn't mean a thing if I don't actually back it up. Anyone can say that they're a Christian, but if they don't actually back it up, it means nothing. It means nothing. 80% over, statistics show that over 80% of Americans call themselves Christians. If that were the case, we'd be building a whole new church because this building would be bursting at the seams. You can call yourself anything you want to. That doesn't really mean anything. Are you in Christ? Are you dead to sin this morning? Are you dead to sin's presence? Are you dead to sin's eternal punishments? Are you dead to sin's power? Are you alive to God? Are you alive to past reconciliation? Or are you full of anger and bitterness and hurt and strife? Are you alive to the present fullness of Christ? Are you living in the fullness of everything that Jesus has done for you way back when he went to the cross on your behalf? Are you alive to the future glory that awaits you in heaven because you've trusted in Jesus Christ? Being a Christian is more than just wearing a label. Being a Christian is about believing that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he said he did. It's about believing him enough to surrender your life to his control. You can be in Christ today because the Bible very clearly says that today is the day of salvation. He has paid the price. He lives today. Listen to again to the words from Romans chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed into sin. And notice this. 
but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As believers, we're alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the only way to salvation. Our lives should therefore demonstrate that we have this abundant life in Jesus Christ, that we are looking forward to the future glory that awaits us in heaven as a result of our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Some of us have trouble demonstrating the blessings of salvation in the way that we live our lives. And there could be a number of reasons why. Some have forgotten about the glorious blessings that we have. You've forgotten about the promise of heaven that God has made to you. You've forgotten about how God wants you to actually live an abundant life now. You've forgotten about the blessings of God's grace that are upon you. And if that's the case, listen to the words from the Apostle Peter as he reminded believers of the blessed hope that they have in Jesus Christ from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. I love these verses because it reminds us of how real God's gifts are, how it is up to him completely to maintain them. He says we are reserved. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are reserved. You have a heavenly reward and an inheritance waiting for you. It says it is an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away it is reserved in heaven for you and it says it is kept by the power of God you know how often I lose things what a shame it would be if God saved you and he says all right here is the key for your salvation whatever you do don't lose it because if you lose it it's all gone within five minutes we'd lose it it would be gone and then what and then we're out of luck and then we're doomed and he says, you know what? I, I know you guys better than often to trust you with such an important gift as your eternity. I, I've had sent my son to pay for your price of sin at the cross. I'm not going to be foolish enough to trust that you can maintain your salvation on your own. I'm going to keep it for you. It's going to be reserved for you, kept, he says, by the power of God, because if it was up to you, you'd squander it within five or ten minutes. He says it is kept and reserved in heaven for you by the power of God through faith unto salvation. He says, wherefore, you have reason to rejoice. Because it's not only promised, it's guaranteed. God says it is like a safety deposit box that has been set and taken care of in heaven, just waiting for you to come and enjoy it. But as much as you rejoice now, he says, knowing that the future in heaven is secure for every single person that believes in Jesus Christ... He says, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. He says, that doesn't mean you're going to have a life of smooth, of smooth sailing. Doesn't, doesn't mean that you're going to have the problem-free life as a Christian. He says, you may have a very difficult road as a Christian. 
He says, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. And he says, the reason is, he says, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know, some of us need to experience the absolute worst for us to really begin to appreciate the goodness of God. And he says, there's many of you that are going through seasons, and they are quite prolonged. Seasons of temptation, seasons of trial, seasons where you're just struggling, seasons where you can't even lift up your head because everything seems to be piling on top of you, and it's just one heaviness upon the next, and it's just piling up and piling up and piling up to where you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. And God says, many of you, this is exactly what you need in order for you to truly appreciate the gift and the blessings that I have in store for you. Because you don't really appreciate how good and gracious and immense God's blessings are until you've seen the absolute worst of the worst. And then you see the best of the best and you're just blown away about how good and gracious God can be. If you've always had it good every day of your life and God says, all right, here's some more good, you'd be like, oh, is that all? Just heaven? I mean, are we going to be doing something exciting there? I mean, I've had a pretty easy life. I haven't had any issues. No problems here. So you're telling me I'm just going to basically transition from one place to the next and continue the same life? Doesn't sound all that appealing. But when you've been through the worst here on earth, and now God says, okay, believer, child of mine, because you placed your faith and trust in me, though you go through some seasons, and they may be prolonged, of manifold temptations, the Bible says, what is awaiting you is going to make you realize how good and gracious and awesome God really is. Because all the burdens of this life, all the cares, all the concerns, all the issues, all the sin, all the evil effects and influences of the world, they're going to be gone completely. And you're going to embrace the perfectness of God in heaven. Now some of us, just the age part of it, we're ready for this life to be over. You're looking in the mirror every single day and you're thinking, who is this old man looking back at me in the mirror? What are all these wrinkles? Where's this gray hair? Where's the hair gone? I shared with you earlier in the week how on Monday, I just, I sat weird next to Ruthie. I didn't even sit on the couch. I, she was sitting on the couch. I sat on the ground up against the couch. For half hour, maybe 45 minutes, I stood up and my back was killing me. As a kid, I could jump off the roof. I could climb trees and do backflips. Maybe not backflips, but I could jump off the trees and not have an issue or pain or ounce of pain in my body. I stood up after sitting in a weird way, and for four days, my back was killing me. What is going on with us? And you're probably thinking, like, congratulations, my back hurts every single day. <laughs> we go through prolonged periods of manifold temptations, we see the effects of sin on our bodies, on the world around us. And what God is telling us is that when all of this is over, and as a believer, you get to experience the fullness of heaven and the glory of Jesus, your mind is going to be blown at how awesome and perfect God is. Our lives here are far from perfect. But believers ought to be living with joy unspeakable as we prepare for that future glory, as we demonstrate what it means to be a Christian. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time?
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to get a, a glimpse into what it means to be a Christian and what it means, Lord, uh, what baptism represents. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what areas maybe in our lives need to change. Lord, I know that every single one of us are struggling with something. But I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us in this room have, have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we know, Lord, that even with that trust is going to come difficult seasons in life. But, Lord, we know that as much as we struggle with sin and trying to get rid of sin and make ourselves better in your eyes, the Lord, that there is a future glory that awaits us that is going to outweigh everything that we've ever experienced here in this life, and it is totally worth it. Help us, Lord, to be focused on you in what we go through in life and the changing circumstances, that we might always show our love and appreciation and live with that joy unspeakable as we know who you are and what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.